This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Does your race define how you think? If it doesn't, why does it raise such ire when people don't go along with the thinking that is expected of them? Eric Smith is a visiting scholar at the Cato Institute and a professor of rhetoric and composition at York College of Pennsylvania. We spoke last month about race essentialism. Race essentialism is the idea that every individual within a race pretty much thinks and acts and believes and hopes and dreams and feels the same, right? Um, Everybody is basically a kind of clone. It's like a racial version of the Borg from Star Trek. And uh, it's not something I'm fond of. So it it, it is the notion that uh, by virtue of your birth, you have a certain amount of melanin in your skin. You have a certain genetic background. Therefore, your opinion on X current public policy issue ought to be this. Yes. Um, But I, I think the most salient aspect of all of this is historical. Um, people who look like me have a particular history in America, and that makes us all the same. So, I mean, it it, it does seem to align with uh, immutable characteristics like skin color, uh, things like that. But ultimately, it's we all went through this 100 years ago. Therefore, we have this attitude today, which is also erroneous. So that's my issue with it. OK, so what does that give us? The the you know, how does that rear its ugly head in terms of how we engage with one another in public? Um, well, Gayatri Spivak called it strategic essentialism, which is a, you know, a political tactic. Um, there are power in numbers. And if you can get together and um, represent yourself as one downtrodden group, then you can get things done uh, more efficiently. That's the idea anyway. Um, it, it it manifests politically in that you look at your own group and you have this idea that your own group is, one, the correct one, right? Um, two, is being um, deprived of something, right? And three, is in constant competition with another group, especially the one who is responsible for the deprivations uh, you're going through. Uh, those are the three things that kind of solidify a uh, group or racial essentialism. And uh, the more you can solidify that, the more powerful you are as a political entity. That's the idea. So by virtue of a race essentialism where uh, your opinions, as far as some folks are concerned, are predetermined in a way. Yes. Uh, that also sort of that bounces back onto people who look like me. Right. And defining me in a, exactly. in a certain way that, uh, yes. you know, my the experiences of folks who look like me 100 years ago ought to or does define how I think about the world. Precisely. Um, in order to be a race essentialist, you have to essentialize other races a- as well. Um, and, and, and that's the idea. And that's the, the, the purpose of this whole thing. Um, a group to motivate a group to solidify a group you you don't need a a god you definitely need a double right and you need that bad guy that you're fighting against um somebody said something comparable and much more eloquent than i did just now and i can't remember who said that but that's the idea right 
um, you know, it, it, it's motivating to get together and realize that you all have to be this collective Luke Skywalker fighting Darth Vader. Um, it's very inspirational, and that's also part of the uh, motivation for race essentialism. So what is that, again, what does that give us in terms of policy debates uh, or in terms of ad policies that are advocated for? There has to be some sort of uh, group that says these are the these are the positions that you ought to hold by virtue of what you look like. Um, what it really does is it, it helps individuals find a sense of agency they don't already have. I think it was Shelby Steele who coined the term integration shock, and that was uh, in the '60s when you know segregation was outlaws, schools were being desegregated and things like that. There was this anxiety that came along with entering the mainstream for people of color, uh, especially uh, Black people. So this anxiety was alleviated when looking at yourself as a member of a larger group as opposed to an individual going out there and, and uh, chasing your dreams and things like that. So a lot of it is about acquiring a sense of security in what you perceive as a hostile world. There's an old Flatt and Scruggs song that I have, that I love. It's called Don't Get Above Your Raisin. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> well, it means it means that you act in sort of a way that y in which you are not comporting yourself as someone who is how you have been raised. You are behaving improperly because you were, you were raised to behave in a certain way mm -hmm. and you're getting above that. You think you're better than that, in a sense. Okay. But it's, it strikes me that that in some ways by telling people who look like you mm -hmm. that it is mark upon you that you don't hold X, Y, and Z opinions, Yes, that it feels like that. Yes. Um, people think that my general happiness and success is, you know, a detriment to my authenticity. Uh, I obviously don't agree with that. What's more, I'm much more of an individual, an individualist than somebody who abides by group consciousness. And I think that's a big distinction between what Nicole Hannah-Jones would call Black and politically Black, right? The politically Black uh, person is the Black person who sees himself or herself as a member of a group. I am an individual who is Black, right? That's different from a black person who is fill in the blank. Kimberly Crenshaw went as far as to say that any black person like me uh, who abides by this individualism, who sees himself as Eric first and black second, is straining for this individuality, which is to strongly imply that it's not natural. You know, that, that is, it's, it's more natural to be a part of a, a group uh, as opposed to thinking of yourself as your own person. And all this results in you know, people telling me I'm not being black correctly. What does race essentialism then do uh, to or how do they characterize uh, individual black achievement? It, it seems like the kind of thing that ought to be celebrated, but it seems that also that uh, if this race essentialism is such a, an important part of defining the culture of a, a racial category mm -hmm. that it would almost have to diminish uh, that, that achievement? There are two uh, responses that come to mind. The first is 
goes back to the whole group consciousness thing. Um, if something bad happens to your group, it's because of that bad, oppressive group over there. If something good happens to your group, it's because, well, it's your group, right? The good stuff is you're doing, the bad stuff is somebody else's doing. So that, that tends to happen a lot. Also, um, you'll get this, um, a successful and happy and fulfilled Black person must be doing something that the white people like, right? He, uh, he must be, you know, working with them. He must be uh, some kind of uh, uh, Tom or, 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 or traitor or something like that. He's, he's not so much Black as he is white adjacent, you know, and, and that's, those are the two responses I have to, to that phenomenon. How do race essentialists characterize someone like uh, Frederick Douglass? Oh, um, there are some people who, you know, uh, have dismissed Frederick Douglass. Uh, this is a person who believed in the Constitution. This is the person they would call conservative uh, these days. This is a person who is all about self-reliance, right? This person, Frederick Douglass, literally said, if you want to help black people, just leave us alone. You just get out of our way. And let do us nothing do, with right, us. do nothing with us. And, and uh, I, I get that. You know, I don't want you to do something for me. I want you to not do something against me. You know what I mean? I want you to allow me to pursue my hopes and dreams. Done. All right. You give me that freedom, I'll take care of the rest. Um, unfortunately, that's not a sentiment shared by everyone. So the the solution to this, um, and I'm trying to write about this currently, is to make individualism cool again. Right. I mean, it's been it's been called something atomistic, something unrealistic. Uh, no man is an island, so therefore individualism is bad. That's not what individualism is really supposed to mean. Uh, individualism, obviously, you know, is uh, inherently interdependent. You know, um, we all need other people. What we have that makes us individuals is our choice to determine which people we need, right? Uh, to create associations, uh, to uh, follow our dreams, right? Despite how we look or what our parents want us to do or what our groups want us to do or, or things like that. That's the individualism. And I think there's a lot of magic in that. I, I think individuality is something that is inherently cool, but people are losing sight of that. I think we need to make it cool again, explicitly. Eric Smith is a visiting scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.